You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch, but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. Hebrews chapter 13, the last, the last one, the last chapter will be done next week. We'll be looking at uh, verses 1 through 16 today. Yeah, and then we'll finish it up next week. And then uh, next book we're going into is 1 John. Not John. Not John's gospel, but 1 John. We'll do 1 John and then 2 and 3 John. Um, and I was like, we'll do 1 John because Hebrews is 13 chapters. So 1 John's 5. It won't take. We can sort of go through it. And then the shortest my outline I've got so far is 13 weeks. So. <laughs> So I guess it won't. <laughs> we won't go through it as fast as I had anticipated. <laughs> There's a lot in it. All right. So as we come to this, uh, it has many exhortations. So we need to remember these exhortations are based upon all of the doctrine that we've gone through, the 12 chapters of doctrine that precede them, okay? And this fits the pattern with the New Testament teaching, which is, it's always doctrine and then duty, all right? Or application, if you will, all right? Position, practice, all right? That's how, how uh, they were inspired to, to lay this out. So I know I talk about it. Uh, I've talked about it a lot. I'll always hit upon it, and I always will. Christian, like, we have to understand we cannot live our Christian life without having uh, an understanding, a sound biblical doctrine. All right? It has to have doctrinal basis to it. Christian living depends on Christian learning, fellowship, all that. To be ignorant of it is just to be completely weak and useless, pretty much. So... Uh, doctrine is it. You know, people say, I don't do theology. I don't get into doctrine. It's just like you do as soon as you start to read the Word. You do. I mean, there's no way around it. So, The exhortations in chapter 12, they were general. They were encouraging them to run, uh, to run the race, right? Run the race of faith. We've seen like with patience, to follow peace, to follow holiness. Now in chapter 13, he gets more specific here. In some respects... Uh, we, we, could, we could treat them as a special elaboration of how to serve God acceptable with reverence and, and godly fear in 1228. So in the first, the, the first way in which we are to do this, it's going to talk about loving one another. So it's, it's very clear the theme of the, the, thir- the first three verses here is love. All right, And as members of God's family, we are to love one another. So we'll look at one through three. Let brotherly love continue. 
Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also you also are in the body. Now, notice in verse one he says, "Let it continue." Right? So he let that continue. He seems to be saying here is they they take take careful steps here to make sure that keeps going on, right? To ensure that that love of the brethren remains operative and does not stop or uh, go go like stale, if you will. The Greek word here uh, is Philadelphia. I don't know if you guys knew if Philadelphia is a Greek word or not, but it is. It means brotherly love. It's not merely in the sense of showing affection or a friendship to one another, but it's in, in the full sense is of making sacrifices for one another as a means of serving Christ. Okay, So when we serve a brother or a sister in the body, from God's point of view, we are serving him. Okay, So we, we make our motive in all that we do to love another believer. And we let that love continue, the writer says. And then he offers examples of what it looks like. He first says to not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, um, in the Greek, it's more specific. It literally means show love to a stranger. All right, so he, he's first emphasized love for brothers, while in verse 2, love for strangers too. All right, so love, <laughs> love everyone. But as we've learned in this letter, the persecution was increasingly common, all right, in the church. And it was especially with the Jew, Jewish believers. So as enemies increased, the church was beginning to withdraw from their culture, okay? So where before the church would show love to strangers, opening their homes to anyone, now they're suspicious of strangers, all right? Probably. Great, great example of what's going on overseas right now, right? Uh, so he, he's encouraging them to love. So now, angel. We have that, that inner, interesting text, right? For thereby some have entertained angels unaware, right? Now, angel there, it can, it can refer to the, the, the supernatural beings, but it could also mean... Uh, humans who are messengers from God, right? It, it may, it's just a messenger. The word angel is messenger. But I think, I think the point, really, the, I think the point here is that we can never know how important and far-reaching a simple act of helpfulness may be to somebody, right? But then on the other hand, could be angels because Abraham helped three men that turned out to be two angels and the Lord himself, and they're sitting on a tree and eating. So <laughs> never know, right? So the next reference is to those who were imprisoned for their Christianity and their beliefs. Prisoners depended on relatives and friends to provide food and clothing and all that. So the, the numerous references to Paul's experiences as a prisoner reveal to us that his friends, they came to take care of his needs. All right. So prisoners then had to be remembered Otherwise, you know, it, it's not like prison today, okay? Uh, 
if they weren't going to be taken care of by friends or family, they're, they're going to go get hungry, thirsty, cold, die. All right. Now we get to uh, marriage. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. All right, so he says Christians are to hold the institute of marriage in a high honor, okay? Honor here is precious or very costly, okay? So to God, the institution of marriage is just that, very precious. Therefore, if you want to serve the Lord well, you should cherish what God cherishes, right? In this, this exhortation to cherish this institution of marriage it, it, it's got to, it says be, be cherished by all. It says held in honor among all, the writer says. Not merely by those who are already enjoying the institution as God has created it, but also by those who are not married yet. Um, also, I was going to just add, I'd point, let marriage be held in honor among all. It needs to be as God has ordained marriage all right, there's a lot. There's a whole section in the Methodist Church that allowed uh, homosexual marriage now. There's parts in the Baptist. It's, it's spreading, you know. So um, they are not holding marriage in honor. All right, so a, mar a married Christian couple then is under uh, this... Uh, they're in this institution, okay? They're in this covenant, and it's under it's by God, and it's to honor marriage until death do us part. We should know this. An unmarried Christian is under obligation to keep pure until the day that they would enter a Christian marriage. And all Christians are to respect and honor the marriages of others, not violating that marriage by defiling the marriage bed, it says. All right. The writer calls out two different types of sins here. First, he says, uh, fornicators, they'll be judged. <clears throat> uh, fornication is a concept that's largely been lost in our, in our culture today. Sadly, I don't know why I'm laughing. It's just, uh, there's probably people that don't even know that word, fornication, right? Uh, I could just go on a whole trial, and I won't. I'm just going to stick to my notes. The Bible says that any form of sexual activity conducted outside of marriage is a sin and it's called fornication all right so it will be clear of what fornication means in the context of honoring the institute of marriage all right it means taking something that you do not have the rights to take all right that's what it means according to god it's never appropriate for believers to engage in sexual activity outside of marriage which leads us to adultery and that's, that's violating the sanctity of your marriage vows or another's marriage vows, all right? The obvious example here is a person engages then in sexual activity with a married person who's not their spouse, right? This is wrong. It's always wrong. It does, it does grave damage to the witness of the church as well, all right? So there's that. Finally, the writer then makes perhaps his most challenging demand of the church in 5 and 6. It says, keep your, keep your life free from love of money. <laughs> Very challenging there to the church, I think. Uh, and, I, and it's not because of this. I just think of all the prosperity, right? All the God wants you rich, your best life now, all that stuff, right? 
All right, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What command do to me? All right, if there's one, if there's one sin in our society which is the most prevalent, the most and more destructive than, than uh, any, uh, sexual immorality and adultery, it, it's got to be financial greed, right? Uh, I forgot who it was. It was one of the richest men. One time they were like, like, uh, do you have enough money or something yet? They were interviewing him, you know, and he was like, how much is enough? And he's like, ah, just a little bit more, right? I forgot as old as in the 80s. I remember seeing a clip from that, but uh, just a little bit more, right? You become a millionaire, make more, some more, become a billionaire, just a little bit more, a little bit more. <laughs> now, it's not wrong to be rich, okay? I'm just, there's some greed there, right? With those who don't know the Lord. The, the reason that it's more prevalent is because one can get away with it easier than sexual inf infidelity too, right? I mean, it's just easy. Now, in the Greek language, verse 5 um, begins uh, with, it says, without covetousness behavior, all right? Christians are not to tolerate or indulge in coveting. Coveting is not merely jealousy over someone else's possession, okay? The concept's much broader than that. It means a sinful wanting, Okay? We can sinfully want for things just in the way our desire for the world's offerings consumes our attention and drives our passions, okay? That's why the opposite of coveting then is contentment. Being content with what you already have, okay? It's, it's the difference between more and enough, <laughs> right? Like, so often we have enough, uh, yet we tell ourselves a little bit more, a little bit more, right? So it's in that pursuit of more that when we have enough that we run the risk then of compromising our character. And that's the whole point. It's, it's compromising. It, you know, it's, it is this, it's sin, but it's all about the character of the Lord because he's in us. We're in him, right? We can compromise the character. So notice at the end of five, um, <clears throat> he's quoting Right? I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is Deuteronomy 31.6. And this is where the Lord promises to Israel that he will never uh, desert nor forsake his people. And he, so he's alluding to the sovereignty of God in assigning to each of us what we have. Okay, Since we know that the Lord will not forsake our needs and will always care for his people, then we must think carefully about our station in life in which we are. All right, God's sovereignty is it is uh, over where we're at, like where we're at, like our how our home is, right? Our home, our car, uh, our money, all that. God is positioned us there, right? He's given some people a lot of money, and then He's given some people next to nothing. Why is like why? I don't know. Don't know sovereignty. Don't. <laughs> it's a deep, deep, deep topic. All right. But this is where we go to the word, like the word, like I started. Uh, this is all doctrinal things, right? Know this. I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
All right? So, in, so it, then in 6, he reminds us from the Psalms that the Lord is our helper. So we have nothing to fear from the world, all right? Because we know, like, all you have to do is, will, will the Lord neglect my needs? Will the Lord forget me? No, right? He, hasn't he promised you that he will meet those needs? He has. May not look like the way you want it to look like. May, the outcome may not be that way, but he, he has, he will. So you have these two quotations, Deuteronomy 31.6, the other one, Psalms 118.6 and 7, and they reveal that the answer to any kind of fear, all right, so fear of poverty would be included here, is found in the promise of God to be with us forever. All right, so as, as, as the world around us, they walk in the sexual sin, in greed, and just, just everything else, we're called to live holy lives that brings glory to God. So remembering that Christ is always with us should help us, right? And it helps to keep us on track. And not just from these two things, but from all other things, right? So now we move forward in the chapter to consider an obligation uh, which lies at the, the heart of our witness and our message. Uh, 7 through 9, he says, Remember your leaders, those who, who speak to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. All right. So he he asked, he's asked, well, he's not, he's saying remember. So he's, he's telling the Hebrews to remember those who led them. All right. Remember here is observe observe carefully so he's at he's telling us to look at the examples that have been set by certain men to imitate their faith uh, that is the way they lived out their faith now remember the whole hall of faith we went through here's all these right and then he's saying he, he's sort of going back to that but to look at them right so like for I, you know, we all have examples in our lives of people that are Christians. We can look at them, examine their lives, how they let, led. You know, I, I'm already working in First John because we're going there, and then it's right. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. That was my grandpa had taught me that one. I didn't know it was a Bible verse. When I was little, I was scared of the dark when I was a kid, right? When, um, and he's like, anytime you get scared of the dark, you know, all you got to do is just say, Jesus cleanses me from all sin. Jesus, the blood of Jesus cleanses me. And like, so he was always giving me verses to help me in fear or different situations. We had password in the 80s, you know, kidnapping was real big. Remember that? <laughs> Sorry, it's not why it's funny. But like in the 80s was just so weird, right? Everything was about white vans and kid and and actually I did there was somebody tried to kidnap me. Uh, uh, anyway, that's a whole other story. But had to have a password for that. Hey, uh, your parents told me us to like your parents aren't going to pick you up from school today. You know that type of thing. What's the password? Like you know, 
uh, Jesus is the Lord of Lords. That was our password. So, <laughs> right? So there's things like that. He was like instilling these things into me as all these helpful things, right? Which they are helpful things. They're reminders. They weren't clicking as a kid, right? They click now, and then I see it in Scripture, and then I'm like, oh, that's what Grandpa said to do when I was scared of dark, right? So he's saying, remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God, all right? Observe them carefully. Examine them. Imitate their faith, right? So he, he's, he is speak, the writer is speaking about a specific group of leaders, though. He's speaking of the apostles, okay? He says that the apostles led the church in the past, that in the very beginning the church was led only by the 12 apostles, and in time, those men would, would lay hands on other leader, leaders who joined them in, in ruling, uh, ruling if you, you know, leading the church. But in the beginning, it was just the apostles. And, and secondly, he says, uh, they, they spoke, spoke uh, the word of God to the church. Only, only the apostles were gifted to bring forth the word. They spoke the word uh, of God to the early church. And he, he doesn't mean... They, they wrote it, but they, uh, they spoke it because of uh, the, many of the letters were to be written, okay? Um, but this was all a result of their conduct, right? The result of the apostles' conduct was the rapid and strong growth of the church, all right? And the book of Acts records this. And within a span of 30 years, their faithful, the sacrificial life of faith produced much fruit in the first century, their ministry was responsible for a multitude of converts from among the Jews, Samaritans, the Gentiles, throughout that known world. All right, So there can be no better uh, pattern then to follow than the one set for us by these men. All right, But it was, when I sidetracked there to talk, like it's still, I believe, very applicable to think of the people in our lives. Right? And our parents or grandparents or maybe there was somebody in the church... Um, all of that can go in there as well, right? So um, now where are we at? <laughs> All right. We, we, we never saw, like, we never saw the apostles, obviously. We never saw their conduct. We never heard them talk. But we have their writings, right? They left, left those, and we have those in the New Testament. So we use them. They're for the church today. The command becomes to observe carefully the, new, the scriptures in the New Testament. Consider how the apostles lived. Consider how they served the church uh, within the book of Acts. Give careful consideration to the teaching that they left us and that we have. So the, the, the writer then, he testifies that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever, which is the word of God spoken through the apostles, and it had its origins in Jesus, right? While the apostles were human beings, they definitely had certain bias to them. They had certain cultural perspectives. But when they spoke the word of God, they weren't speaking according to their own wisdom. They were speaking under inspiration of the Spirit. They were delivering that the doctrine, theology, the message authored by God himself. So God's word never changes because truth never needs to change, despite what the media tells us. <laughs> Jesus is always culturally uh, relevant. 
And yet he's never subject to the whims of our society or our culture. God delivered to the apostles a set of instructions that were prepared before the foundations of the earth. And that's why he says in verse 9, we're not to be carried away by any other teachings. The diverse, strange teachings. It refers to the assortment of, conf uh, of confusing false teachings the world and the false teachers offered, offered then and offers now to lead people away from the truth. It's a reoccurring thing. How many times have we, how many times have I said false teaching and false teachers standing up here? It blows my mind when people are like, people always talk about false teachers or false. It's like, that's like one of the primary topics. It's what they were always combating. It's what we're always combating now. Here it is, like First John, like I'm already, like I said in First John, that's gonna be like he's there's no there's no hello or anything. It's just like boom, like here let, we we're getting right to it. But it's always to combat these things, diverse, strange teachings. Right? Their program is not to promote a certain false teaching. It's almost always to oppose some sort of truthful teaching. <laughs> very subtle too, right? Very, very crafty. They don't care which fa false teaching a person is after, just as so long as they don't follow after the truth that's found in God's word. Don't get accompanied so much. Don't get used to everything that's in that Bible. Because if you do, then you'll start to be able to tell what we're doing, right? That, that's the issue. So they're, uh, they're, they're always working. They're always going. They're always scheming to create a new, a varied, strange, new teaching, new revelation, something new. It's been withheld for so long to draw people's interest away from the word of God. That's the whole, that's the whole point. As long as you don't know this... You'll be carried away by anything else. So we have to be strengthened in our heart by God's grace, all right? To be strengthened by grace then means to be reinforced in our liberty as Christians, which is resting in Christ's work alone, and not becoming the slaves to works or of, of one kind or another, all right? But understanding that you rest in work done by Christ, not depending on your own works to be acceptable to God, all right? And we get this because we know this from the Word. Then you're empowered to serve God in tremendous ways. But as long as you think you have to do something to please and, and God and all this, and your relationship depends on works, you're hampered then by that notion, focusing on those things that you have to do these things to keep God happy rather than being free to follow wherever he sends you. Does that make sense? <laughs> so one particular aspect of false teaching, it mentioned near the end, it had to do with food, right? <laughs> All right, so... When he says that the heart is strengthened not by foods, but the reception of grace, what he's saying is that a person experiences spiritual strength by the reception of grace, not by a certain food. Okay, so the Jewish believers in the church 
in this day, they were being tempted by the the false teachers to resubmit to the dietary restrictions, okay, of that came it comes from Leviticus, the Levitical system. They were being told to only eat certain foods, to abstain from the non-kosher ones. And those varied and strange teachings claimed that by abstaining from certain foods, that the believers in were making themselves more acceptable and pleasing to God, right? So they were becoming more holy and more spiritually clean. <laughs> and we have this today, too. There's people who not, it's not just the Levitical things, but they think if we don't partake, and there's people who don't do holidays. There's Christians that don't do holidays. They don't even do Christmas presents or anything like that because it's pagan so we're not going to do that and it, it, that's going to make us more acceptable more acceptable pleasing to god and our testimony will be stronger to others around us unless you know the word of god and then you go you're just missing out on fun <laughs> right so it, it's still all this still so very very uh very relevant all right so the writer says, though, that these teachings were not capable of producing the spiritual benefit that their uh, uh, proponents claimed, right? Only resting in God's grace holds any potential uh, to grow us or mature us spiritually. And since Jesus never changes, we need uh, not depart from his word and seeking for additional advantages or secret solutions to godliness. All right, I gotta hurry. I'm not going to hurry. Sorry. 10 through 16. We have an altar from which those who serve the, the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not ne neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Okay, so... While he doesn't come out and just name a false teaching he's working against here, we can tell what's bothering him, that in a word, it's about sacrifice. Okay? So the, the essential act of service to God has always been sacrifice. This should be made clear throughout the whole counsel of God. It's, it was necessary. It's necessary for the payment of sin. Sacrifice uh, uh, takes away God's wrath. It restores fellowship. So from Abel to Noah to like Abraham to Moses, all Israel, and then to the church today, sacrifice is the heart of worship. So under the new covenant, though, our sacrifice is found in the body and in the blood of Christ, sacrificed on our behalf. And then Paul teaches in Romans 12 that we, in turn, should make our lives a living sacrifice to God in thanks for that grace and mercy. That he died for us, so we live our life for him. We sacrifice desires to suit his desires. We sacrifice our priorities to accomplish his priorities, right? 
That's the, that's the new covenant sacrifice upon which our fellowship with God is made possible. Really, and it, this all sounds like do this to do that, but really what it is is the actual change that happens when regeneration takes place and you're walking practical sanctification. You want to do these things. You're not actually weighing them out. So I need to go and do this or do this for God. Like, it's just reaction because you're living for God now. But the Judaizers in the church, they were teaching Jewish believers that they were still required to perform these animal sacrifices on the altar at the temple. And so just like the dietary laws, this was one of those strange teachings that drew, that drew believers away from grace and take them back into the bondage of law. So this teaching, teaching was even worse because it had the potential to erode a believer's confidence in the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. Because if it were true that animal sacrifice were required to remain in God's favor, what would that say about the meaning and power of Christ's death? Right? The, the writer's concerned that the people were being taught they still had to add to what Jesus did, which neg totally negates what he did. <laughs> so he counters that the temple sacrifices, they're useless. He proves his point by highlighting the role of the priest. In the temple, the priest officiated for you in that sacrifice of the animal that you delivered. You worked with the priest to get that done. Right, We learned earlier in this letter, the role of the priest is to re represent God before men, men before God. But the author points out that the priest officiating in the temple sacrifice uh, couldn't qualify to eat from the Christian's altar. Because eating at the Christian's altar is a reference to participating in Christian communion meal, which, which pictures our Lord crucified. All right, as our sacrifice. So the Jewish priests in the temple were not believers. They're not believers, right? They're, since they had not accepted Christ as their Messiah. So they were not qualified to participate in that communion meal. So in verses 11 and 12, I'm sorry, but you know, we started late. <laughs> the, the writer reminds his readers that the animal sacrifice animal sacrificed in the Levitical system was never more than the pictures of the one true sacrifice that God uh, made available in his son. So the, the bodies of the, of the animals, they were taken out of the temple and they were burned outside of the, the camp of Israel because the law required it. So even in this detail, he points out how that pictured Jesus. Because in the same way, Jesus, his body was crucified outside the city walls in a fulfillment of that picture. And that sacrifice resulted in the sanctification of Christ's people, that all those who trust in his sacrifice. So he's reminding the readers that the, the Lord's sacrifice was entirely su sufficient to atone for sin and to sanctify us. So the recipients then of this letter had gone forth outside the camp to associate themselves with Christ and his cross. But now the resolve is weakening and they're being tempted to turn back in the hope of finding an easier, more respectable existence inside the camp. 
Identifying with Christ means that we will have to suffer some way. Here in America, not so much. Maybe soon. I don't know. <laughs> All right? But bear the reproach he endured. It says that when a Christian separates from the world system and turns to God, then they will bear varying degrees of reproach. The, practi the practical point is this. As Christians... We must be willing to go out from that world system to bear the reproach and the shame that Christ himself bore and to be rejected by men if that's the case. Hebrews 13, 13 is a call to confess Christ, to identify with him and separate from the world in, in those, those manners. Because for, for they had not continuing, uh, for they had no continuing city because they sought the new one to come in verse 14. That gives the readers this incentive. They were seeking a city that was about to come, right? The city they were looking for was that new Jerusalem, was the new covenant in its consummated state. It was the, the new covenant age. And he, he closes this, this section with an ex exhortation in 15 and 16, and this is it. Jesus Christ is our sole mediator, and it's according, accordingly through him, not through the priestly ritual of this outdated order or any other person or any other system that we offer up sacrifices to God. These spiritual sacrifices are defined here as first praise to God. And this includes, but it's not exclusive to seeing, it's thankfulness and gratitude and so on. The second of spiritual sacrifices is, is defined here as compassionate service to our fellow man, doing good and sharing. Our, the sacrifices are not just verbal. They're works of love. There's action. So when we minister to someone in need, we, we are, as a priest, offering up a spiritual sacrifice to God. So in closing... We can please God. We can offer up spiritual sacrifices that please Him. But in order to do this, we separate ourselves from the world and we're willing to identify with Christ and to suffer for His sake if, if, if needed to, right? If, if, that, if that's what it calls for. But all of this comes in the practical living out of the Word as you study and grow in relationship with the Lord on a daily basis and mature, right? We go all the way back to where, like, you need to mature, but you guys are dull of hearing and all that. Like, to mature and grow and to be able to move past elementary things to the higher things of the Lord. Any questions, comments, disagreements? 